different podcast actually i'm gonna call it a bnb bonus and i'm sure you guys will all appreciate this i am doing this one a la carte solo by myself hello jessica is not here i've got the house to myself this evening and what do i choose to do i try to entertain you guys just a little bit so this is what we will call bnb bonus number four And man, do I have a good one. And I think we're just going to name this one People Named Dan. I'm sure you guys are all scratching your head right now going, what the hell? (laughs) People Named, that's a hell of a name for a podcast. A hell of a title anyway. But you'll get there. Are we together? We'll get there. I don't know how this is going to go. Because I've never done a podcast by myself with you guys. But if you think of people named Dan, I can think of a lot of people named Dan. Famous people or people that I know personally. Dan Marino, he was a hell of a quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. Arguably one of the best ever. Dan Aykroyd and Danny DeVito, great actors in their day. Daniel Boone, late 1700s, frontiersman. Dan Quayle, vice president of the United States, could not spell the word potato. For those of you that's about my age or a little older. Iowa dairy farmer on TikTok, the best dairy farmer in the United States of America, or close to it. His name's Dan. I had a guy one time that ran my sputter. He always had a massive, massive dip in his mouth. It just, and for those of you that don't know, dipping disgusts me. It just, it's one of those things. It's just so gross. I can't stand it when somebody's dipping and they spit it in a Mountain Dew bottle and have that sitting there riding around with them in their truck. It just disgusts me. It, it just, I just don't like dip. But I named that rig operator Dippin' Dan. So we're going to talk about a different guy whose name is Dan. You might have heard of him. And maybe some of you young bucks haven't. But if you haven't, you need to. Whenever you were growing up, you know, I'm 43. So rewind my life 20 years. Did any of you guys like really look forward to the night before Thanksgiving? Around here, a lot of people called it drunksgiving. Many called it friendsgiving. But it was the night where if you were 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 years old, that's about where it ended for me. But in that span, the night before Thanksgiving, oh, that, that was the best part of the whole holiday. Because all your friends that you went to high school with and from your hometown were coming back home for the holiday, and y'all were old enough to go to the bar and just burn the place down that night. I mean, <laughs> believe it or not, drunksgiving ruined a lot of Thanksgivings. Um, 
at least for it, it, by ways of the way you felt the next day. But it was always a great time. Always a great time. Well, what we're going to talk about tonight is this guy named Dan and what he did <laughs> the night before Thanksgiving, 51 years ago. And this is no exception that time does slip into the future. So we're going to rewind where this man Dan was at on November the 24th, 1971. That had been 51 years ago for those of you in Bone Gap. We're going to the airport at Portland, Oregon. And it's the night before Thanksgiving and it's a hustling and bustling place. And everybody's trying to get where they're going to go so they can go celebrate Drunksgiving or Friendsgiving or whatever you want to call it. Dan is no different. He's dressed in a black overcoat, black tie, white undershirt, black slacks, black work clothes. He just looked like a normal businessman. He boards the flight. Northwest Orient Flight 305, originating in Portland, Oregon, and flying you with service to Seattle. Everything's all good. 43 passengers on board, six crew. That would be two pilots, a flight coordinator, and three flight attendants. Taxi out to the runway. Tower gives them clear. They take off. Shortly after takeoff, Dan turns around and hands the flight attendant sitting in the jump seat a note. Well, you know, she just grabs it. She's used to being flirted with, just like all flight attendants. She thought, oh, boy, just another lonely businessman. He's just trying to hit on me or whatever. Gives me a note, puts it in her pocket. Goes about her business. After a couple of minutes, Dan turns around and says, Hey, <laughs> read that note. I have a bomb in my briefcase. I didn't get anybody's attention. She reads the note. Sure enough, says he's got a bomb in the briefcase and it lists his demands. His demands were quite simple. We will go on ahead and land in Seattle. Upon landing, I want this jet refueled. I want four parachutes. And I want $200,000 in cash. Flight attendant takes the note up to the cockpit. Cockpit radios down to the ground. The protocol then was you just do whatever the hijacker wants. We have to keep all the other people on board safe. And that's the protocol. Plane lands in Seattle, goes to a remote part of the airport. The FBI delivers his $200,000 cash. Every one of those bills were trackable. The FBI knew the serial numbers to all of those bills. They brought Dan four parachutes. One of those parachutes was a dud. Not intentionally a dud, but it was just a dud. It was a training parachute they used at a local skydiving business. Why did Dan want four parachutes? It's speculated Dan wanted four parachutes to fool the FBI and law enforcement into thinking more than just Dan was going to jump out of this plane. Well, if that's the case, you don't want to give Dan a bunch of dud parachutes. 
You want to make sure they're live and in working order. That way, if he drags a co-pilot or the flight coordinator or a flight attendant with him, they would have a chance of survival jumping out of an airplane. Dan picked the Boeing 727. He knew what he was doing. You're damn right he knew what he was doing. The reasons, because the Boeing 727, on the belly of it, towards the rear of it, had a stairway you could let down and exit or enter the aircraft. He knew that. <laughs> well, Dan had his shit together. Once he got everything he asked for, he let all the passengers off, except for one flight attendant, the two pilots, and the flight coordinator. Dan argued, leave that aft door down when you take off, and... The pilots argued back, no, that's too dangerous. We're not sure if we can get off the ground with that. The drag that it will produce, no. He finally agreed. They lifted the door, took off. Now that they're in the air, two F-106 fighters from McCord Air Force Base followed the 727. These military jets maintained an S flight pattern to stay behind the Boeing, but out of Dan's view. Dan told the pilots, you are to fly this aircraft as slow as it will fly without stalling, which is around 100 knots, which is basically 115 miles an hour, and you were to fly at a level of 10,000 feet. Dan knew what he was doing. I'm telling you, the guy knew exactly what he was doing. He was no idiot when it came to aviation. Well, why is 10,000 feet important? Well, it's very important. At 10,000 feet, you don't run out of oxygen. You have plenty of oxygen up there. I, you know, I had a Cessna 172 airplane. I could fly it, that little plane, to 10,000 feet. Now, it would take half a day to get up that high in that little airplane. But you can fly up there at 10,000 feet, and you don't need oxygen. You don't need a, a, uh, a pressurized cabin. You're good. You're good. You could fly there all day long and breathe just fine. No hypoxia, no passing out, or otherwise. That's why Dan wanted to go to 10,000 feet, not to 15 not to 20, but 10,000 feet. Why do you want to go slow? Well, obviously, if you're going 400 mile an hour and try to jump out of a plane, that'd probably be a whole lot more violent than 100 mile an hour. The shits of it was, is that night it was cloudy, misty, rainy. In other words, the plane was in or above the clouds. You couldn't see the ground. So as I said, the plane took off at 740, up in the cockpit, an alarm went off at 8 p.m. It said the aft staircase had been activated. The pilot used the intercom to ask Dan, Hey, you need any help back there? He just said no. The last thing the flight attendant remembered seeing was Dan with the duffel bag of money around his waist, a parachute on, and him putting his last cigarette out. <laughs> he sounded like a pretty sly dude. Let's just cool. I don't know how you're cool in this situation, but he was cool. Suddenly, cabin air pressure changed. Obviously, it dropped because the back door went open. Everybody's ears probably popped. They were probably swallowing, needing to chew gum and do that. And that was the last we heard of Dan. So here we have this Boeing 727 flying through the air with the aft stairway down at 10,000 feet. And the pilots are not sure whether Dan is still even back there. They continue on towards Reno, Nevada, which is where Dan said, hey, we're going to land to refuel on our way to Mexico City. 1102, with the rear staircase down, they land at Reno. 
I'm sure all law enforcement you could possibly imagine was there. FBI, local deputies, city cops, rent-a-cops, state troopers, everybody, I'm sure, was there ready for that plane to land. Guess what? Dan is gone. The money is gone. However, he did leave behind four things. He left behind his black clip-on tie, a tie clip, eight cigarette butts, and the headrest of where Dan was sitting had a few hairs on it. For 1971, they took all that evidence, did the best they could with it, and came up with nothing. I Absolutely nothing. These people are lost. Where'd Dan go? Can you imagine, though? Can you just imagine the balls that it would take to hijack a plane, but no, whenever you're hijacking, Hey, I'm going to jump out of this thing. Once we take back off. I mean, that, <laughs> so that kind of tells me that Dan must've known something about, uh, skydiving or parachuting that t- kind of tells me maybe he was military. Plus, you know, as we've discussed, he knows the Boeing 727. He knows slow airspeed. He knows the altitude that he wants to jump from, but he's gone. Totally gone. And this, this case remained cold forever. I mean, a long time. No leads, all kinds of theories, hypothesis, conspiracy theories, things like that. Nothing. Nobody came forward claiming to know this man. Nobody had said, yeah, we found an old parachute in the woods over there. Because that was another thing. The plane took off. They could not... The authorities could not say exactly where the plane was whenever Dan jumped out. Some people say he was farther to the west. Some people say he was farther to the east. Some people said we had a we had a hell of a tailwind and the plane was actually farther south than what we thought it was. No matter what, he was jump imagine the terrain over Oregon and southern Washington. I mean, it was it's mountainous, hilly, trees. Nobody found a parachute. Nobody found anything. I mean, it's a cold case for nine years. The money never showed up in circulation anywhere. Ultimately, the speculation was at that point, Dan died. Dan died. It's amazing we didn't find him. It's amazing we didn't at least find the parachute, anything. But Dan's dead. Well, then, nine years later, on February 10th, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was with his family vacationing on the Columbia River at a place known as Tina, T-E-N-A, bar, about nine miles from Vancouver, Washington. He is farting around on the beach, digging stuff up, just like kids do, and he uncovered some cash, (laughs) because that just happens every day. He uncovered $5,800 as he was trying to build a fire pit. The bills were broken down, disintegrated. You know, they've been laying there a while but they were all bundled in the rubber bands just like they were bundled in rubber bands when the FBI put them in the duffel bag that went on to Dan's airplane. So they called the authorities said, Hey, look at all this cash we found. FBI comes in, looks at it, cross references, serial numbers. I'll be damned. That money was on flight 305. That money left flight 305. How did it get down here on this beach buried? And if it did end up on this beach and Dan buried it, $5,800, um, 
Where's where's the other 194,000? It was all arranged in the same exact order as when it was given to Dan. Nothing different. In other words, Dan never took that money out of the rubber bands, looked at it, inspected it, and then put it back in. Nothing, nothing to tell anybody that that money had actually been touched. This raised more questions than it answered, as you can imagine. One of those questions was whenever they started dissecting and going through these bundles of bills, 10 bills were missing from one of the packets. Another question that came up was, how are these rubber bands still intact after nine years? You know, most people would think those rubber bands would have disintegrated, but they were intact. Now, I could go in to all the conspiracy theories, everything associated with Dan, what some people think happened. Some people did. The thing is, is, and this is what gets me. Yes, $5,800 was found, but the rest of the money wasn't. And the rest of that money never showed up in circulation anywhere in the United States of America. So where did it go? The fact there were $10 bills or 10 bills missing out of that one packet tells me Dan made it to the ground alive. If Dan was in his mid forties, as they suggested, Whenever this happened, Dan would be in his mid-90s right now, or dead, most likely dead, from old age if he survived. And What happened to Dan? It was a cold night that night. I mean, it's not like he jumped out and when he landed, it was 72 degrees out on the ground. It was 30 to 35 degrees is what it was estimated when he landed, if he made it to the ground alive, which I contend that he did. Where'd the parachute go? You're, you're, you're in a parachute. You're, you're falling or gliding down into a bunch of trees. You end up in the trees. How do you get the parachute back down? Some people say he was an experienced skydiver. He knew what he was doing. That's all well and good, but that doesn't take care of the fact that there was clouds and it was overcast. It doesn't bode well to the fact that it's dark. I mean, it's not like he could have pulled out his iPhone back then with location services turned on and went, oh, well, there's the Columbia River. I'm going to glide over that way. But Dan, you're probably like, who's Dan? Why? Where do you get this name Dan? Dan's name was Dan Cooper. At least that's the name he used when he bought his one-way ticket to Seattle. And it was a reporter's mistake whenever they labeled Dan as D.B. Cooper. Now, I don't know if I'm going to get this job done, and I'm going to try, but... The flight coordinator on that flight, 305, is still alive today. I'm going to try to get a hold of him. Fun fact, his name is Harold Anderson. He has a granddaughter. Her name is Aubrey Anderson Emmons. Some of you might recognize that name. Because she is famous. She played Lily on Modern Family. Aubrey Anderson Emmons. Aubrey's dad is Kent Emmons. Kent Emmons is my cousin. So I am going to try and no guarantees. But I'm hoping in the next few weeks, B&B bonus number five is the interview with Harold. 
Adios, my friends. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>